love sushi, I love Japan. My social life has hit the fan. All I have is anime, so I guess there's just one thing to say. Guru Gamesh, my life's a mess. My figure collection is racking up debt. My wife has left, my house is gone. Time to get my butt to Sakura Con. Guru Gamesh. Welcome to the Guru Gamesh Podcast, the only in one place for anime discussion on the internet. I am the host of the Most Mostly Jay. Uh, to my right is a uh, uh, fellow tree spirit, Vikram, and today we're going back to 1997. D- do you remember that time? I don't. I didn't exist then. I think I was one. So yeah, I do. Just just one year old Vikram rocking out to Spice World, playing Final Fantasy VII. You know, wit- witnessing probably one of Bill Clinton's sex scandals. I, I don't know. You were there, man. You were living it up. I was living it up in nappies. I was chilling. <laughs> That's British for diapers. Uh, but speaking of environmental catastrophes, uh, our episode this week is kicking off our slightly uh, delayed Ghibli June, where we will be focusing on, for the next four weeks, four Studio Ghibli films. And, well, we might as well kick it off with one of the most famous ones, Princess Mononoke. This was kind of an obvious choice for us to, us to do. Well, so every Ghibli... Well, okay, not every Ghibli. But there are a lot of Ghibli... Ghibli movies that are obvious choices, but the grandest of them, there aren't that many grand Ghibli movies. That is one of them. That is one of the grand. Like when you think Studio Ghibli, you think Spirited Away, you think Princess Mononoke, and you think Tales of Earthseas. And don't worry, we're going to get to that one. (laughs) Yes. Technically a Miyazaki film. And goddamn, we're going to tear that in your orifice. But now, what I find fascinating about Princess Mononoke is not only its staying power, specifically in the English-speaking American just animation community, because it's definitely outside of the anime sphere and always has been, but it's how it pertains to this idea of media for children. Because Vic, I'm going to ask you at the beginning of this episode and at the end of this episode, is this a children's movie? Because I don't know. Yeah, we were talking about this during the film as well, because you were pointing it out and I was like... It's full of whimsy and charm and family and adventure. And then there's, you'll see a pig bleed to death and then you'll see wolves vivisect someone and three separate instances of beheading via arrowhead yes he shoots an arrow so powerfully that it literally does a clean decapitation like not even yeah and it was bizarre and like we were actually going through it and i remember because you sort of evoked these memories of when i was learning about the american mpaa and all that and yeah as long as you don't focus on it too much and as long as the toad isn't too bad usually they let some rather horrific stuff just slide well i think we're gonna get into that because i think the violence is very purposeful in this film as well as the peace and quiet. So a lot of people were exposed to this as children, and it sort of colored their perception of just not only Studio Ghibli, but what animation could be. Because I'm going to use this word a lot in this episode. This is a saga. This 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 story, this world, feels bigger than the events being depicted in it. This has Lord of the Ring vibes. Like, there are more stories 
that than you're being told. I agree. And if you know a little bit about Lord of the Rings, you actually know that Lord of the Rings, the, at least the main trilogy of books, actually takes place at the end of that storyline. Uh, as in, these are when things are least magical and least fantastical and crazy. And whenever you meet new characters, there's usually a feeling or an essence that such bigger and crazier stuff has happened behind the past, uh, behind this stuff, and you just don't know about it. And in the same way, this is what happens with Mononoke. Yeah, the likes of, you know, conflicts between warlords, the, you know, the history of the uh, Imishi people. Just there's, there's a lot of little nuggets thrown in just to sort of make the mind wander, but not really expand upon them. And that's, it's very purposeful. I do appreciate that. But um, I'm not sure if you noticed, uh, it's quite subtle. I think this film has something to say about nature? Not possible. Okay. I didn't see any nature in this film. Were my woke politics leaning too too far into it? This is is definitely woke-tivism through and through. Um, no, but in all serious notes, <laughs> like it, it look, is I, I, look, not. This, this technically screened in America in 1997. Yes, um, I just wonder if presidential candidate Al Gore had used Princess Mononoke in his. What campaign are you talking about? He election. invented Princess Mononoke. It wasn't even Miyazaki. <laughs> I'm super serial, guys. You need to watch my Japanimation collection. You can borrow my laser disc. <laughs> yeah. Oh God. <laughs> Uh, oh god yeah but going sorry going back on topic before we start going really far off um yeah it's not even remotely subtle not even remotely and i think that's kind of the point because whilst not strictly an environmentalist parable we're talking about a creator mr anna anime's grumpy grandpa hayao miyazaki himself who is a complicated asshole of a man. Look, there's no way of saying it. Man is gifted. He has a phenomenal eye for detail and movement and is one of the greatest filmmakers to ever walk the earth. But Jesus Christ, there are so many accounts of him just being a nightmare to work with. And apparently this film is no different. He corrected a lot of the drawings in this in this picture as Studio Ghibli between films, between the likes of uh, Kiki's Delivery Service and Whisper of the Heart, they had a lot of trainees come in and they sort of came of age where they really wanted to put them toward like a big saga of a project. And uh, all those all those new hires probably hated working on this because there's there's countless reports of just Miyazaki being, we've talked about this in our loop on the third episode, of him being a dictator of a filmmaker. And to be fair, in terms of, in terms of results, it served him well, but oh boy. <laughs> yeah... So this is a circumstance where his actions behind the scene might have might have enabled him to have like his vision come to life. Well, uh, allegedly, he had the idea of this back when he was working on stuff like Nazca Valley of the Wind in like the 80s and had sort of character designs sort of planned out. But this was this was the time to sort of do a grand epic like this. So in terms of the film itself, because you were first exposed to this like a couple of weeks ago? Yeah, I'm more or less, this was more or less a cold open for me. I've seen this like four times at this point. Yeah, um, like I said, it, this, it gave me such very strong Lord of the Rings vibes. It is an epic saga where stories are have already concluded, but they've already been kind of like watching a Marvel movie now. I think Hayao Mi- I think you may have just killed Hayao Miyazaki. <laughs> I look, 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 he's, he's been hanging on for years, but that one sentence might just stop his heart dead. Yeah. You've uh, done it, Vikram. You've, fi- <laughs> you've finally beaten him. 
Well, the thing is, you get the sense that oh, there are all these amazing stories that are, oh, th- these stories, I'm just going to say stories, that have already concluded and you've gotten the remnants of what has happened in between. And then you see these characters do certain crazy things. And you're like, when the fuck did they get that power? When did they, when were they able to do that? How did they figure that out? And <laughs> now, I like the bit where Samuel L. Jackson came in at the end of the movie to say that Ashitaka will return in Spirited Away game. Or Spirited Away 2. Even more spirits. <laughs> Spirited Away 2. On the rocks. <laughs> yeah, uh, but like, um, yeah, there's a sense of like, oh, did I miss something? Is there context? But the great thing about... Uh, uh, at least where how he does it here. I was about to say a Miyazaki movie, but I don't know how much he does it in his other movies. I'd say quite a bit, considering all of his, like, from stuff like Nausicaa Valley of the Wind to other things like, I mean, I know it's the real world, but The Wind Rises or Howl's Moving Castle, there is sort of an idea of a lived-in world, and it's not necessarily unique to his pitches, but there is something that quite, speaking to a lot of his enthusiasts and a lot of his fans, that is something that is a hallmark of Ghibli production. The idea of the blending of reality and fiction, a, fee, a lived-in world made of pencil and ink. Wait, there's the, but it's more than that. Because I can see it in his movies because he does it well, whereas I see other movies don't do it as clearly or as poignantly as he might. Man, we're setting up a whole bunch of suspense for Tale of Verses, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, I think we are. But... Yeah, there's a thing that he does where he adds flourishes either to the dialogue or how react other characters react to him expressing uh, express well other character how some how surrounding characters react to the main character who's speaking. Let's say that adds a sense of suspense and environment to the things that they're saying that that more hint and more express the idea that this is a story already concluded and they've earned the respect or admiration of the people around them. It's a very unique looking film as well. Like it's technically, I thought this was entirely fictional, but it's a blend of fictional reality, much like Hayao Miyazaki's entire career. So it's based on a period in Japanese history called the Murama Amachi period, where essentially it was bet- it was sort of between the 1300s and 1500s, where I'm not going to go super into this because I didn't have time, but... The important thing about this period was there were a lot of sort of like small wars over territories and influences from China and later Western Europe would make their way into Japanese society. Oh, the warring states, yeah. I mean, that was that. That's a lot of it. That's a lot of Japanese history. But this sort of mash of historical influences melds with the heightened sort of folklore, using a lot of sort of yokai influences and the fact that you know the 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 great forest is based on the Yakushima forest, which if you just look at pictures of, it's literally, it's almost one for one, the forest in this film. And speaking of that, as much as we joke, this film may not have like an explicit environmental message, but dear God, is it, it's almost text. It's not subtext. No, it's not. It's it's basically text. But the reason I want to bring that up is the fact that it's, it could only be a story told by, by by someone who's Japanese or a crew that's Japanese. And the reason that is, is that Japan to this day is still over 60% covered in forest. Wow. Yeah, no, uh, it's, it's one of the sort of most dense forest areas in the entire world. I think I sort of did some looking at like, so this is taken from the Ministry of Environment of Japan. Uh, this may be a couple of years old, but according to this, Forest areas cover 67% of Japan of Japanese 
total land area and agricultural lands. And yeah, it's a large part of Japan is still decorated with beautiful primitive and secondary farmer, sorry, primitive and secondary forests. So like this idea of forest industrialization honestly is probably very personal for the crew of this film, especially considering Hayao Miyazaki is is someone who has dealt with this war of industry and forest, because as much as he has yeah. been very open about how the fact he loves nature, he also loves drawing bombs and planes and tanks and sort of will reminisce about his enthusiasm for, you know, aviation, which, you know, kind of culminated in his production of The Wind Rising. So this film is almost kind of like a balancing act of his two passions. And... It's a, I mean, aside from the fact that we're dealing with almost shogun warlords and we're dealing with very, very Japanese imagery, it is its own world taking influence from, like, you know, the, the rifles that Lady Oboshi and her men and her women use are taken from, like, a Chinese fire stick design in the 1500s before, you know, European sort of powder guns really took, took forth. The whole sort of look of Iron Town being this haven for you know, nomads, essentially, lepers and prostitutes. And uh, it is, it's just really interesting that Miramax chose this film to try and get over to the whiteies. <laughs> Honestly, though, I think this is probably one of the more translatable works. Well, we're going to get to the translation later because the West had a had a history of uh, butchering Ghibli's work. It's an anime. The West has a history of butchering. Well, no, 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 no. I mean, even more so. Like, famously, we're not going to get into this because this is more material for Nausicaa Valley of the Wind. Uh, the Nausicaa advertisement, when it tried to sort of come over to America, was called Warriors of the Wind. Massive parts were cut out of it, and the poster showed three random male characters that didn't do much in the film because they were terrified of marketing a film with a female protagonist. Wait, they were terrified of marketing with a, f- yep. a female protagonist? Yes. They were terrified of that? Yes. They wanted it to be appeal more to boys. It's a tale as old as time. So when it came to Mononoke, Studio Ghibli sort of requested quite firmly more control and less edits. There's a famous story. You could Google it. I'm not going to retail it. Oh, yeah, the no cuts. Yeah, the no cuts where the producer, it wasn't Miyazaki, but the producer sent a sword to producers at Miramax. I can't remember if this is famous, nice individual who did nothing wrong, Harvey Weinstein or not. It probably was knowing this era. But yeah, they were sort of treated with a lot more respect and adoration. There's, there's a lot of sort of interview footage where people in the animation industry are sort of lauding Miyazaki as a god, but he's kind of just, he's kind of just standing there awkwardly. This idea of him as the second coming of Christ in terms of animation, he really doesn't put it on himself. It's very much prescribed to him. He's always very blunt and candid in interviews. What is he blunt and candid about? Literally anything in his lifetime. This man will smoke in front of children. This man will insult his employees openly. Uh, this man will just... I mean, if I think he said, I don't think I'll ever see Miramax's version. Uh, I don't know if I'd call that... I am paraphrasing, because I did, I, I did do a lot of last-minute cramming research here, but... I, I see where you're coming from, but I don't necessarily consider that candid in the way you were phrasing it. Just because you were saying that, oh, he's a... G- 
like a lot of people consider him a god, but he's quite candid about his position. Well, no, no. What I mean is the fact that I think because of his exposure through Disney and the fact that he's had a lot more of mainstream highlighting than a lot of other anime directors, he's been we've we've made this pedestal for him to stand on. So specifically, so I've talked a lot about sort of like the culture and 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 meaning of this film, but just as a picture. What are your what are your thoughts and feelings? As a picture, it was superbly composed. Um, bloody hell! Uh, the man is a master of his craft, and it fucking shows. He absolutely nailed every frame of animation. And when somebody like Miyazaki comes out and says that it needs to be hand drawn, all of it, you'd be like, okay, dude, fucking chill. Like, technology comes around. But you can sort of see why he claims that it needs to be like that. Because he's a master of his craft, and he's willing to use every fucking frame. But even with that in in place, not every... This is a quite interesting factor. About 10% of this film is still digitally composed. Like, it's far off from... We, we, we linked to Disney because they helped distribute it. Say, like, you know, a Pixar with a other very nice individual who definitely didn't go to jail for sex crimes, John Lasseter. Because it's beautiful. Not only is the composition of every shot perfect, mm. so you can see the details and what they're trying to go for, but there's usually a unique style with which that is, like, very specific to the film that is unlike other animations I've seen. Like the way the arrow will fly through the air, or the spasms of the muscles yes. of our main character. That particularly, like, Ashitaka and his struggle with the curse of the iron bullet, that is that uses a lot of sort of computer compo- compositing, and so does the sort of opening scene with, you know, the, the, the boar god imbued with all of these sort of flashy, bloody tentacles. Yeah. There's no other way of describing them. And it is quite interesting that even... Someone like Miyazaki has to acknowledge that CG has its place, even with being very, very, very limited in existence. But likewise, it achieves sort of an otherworldly factor that's very effective. That, like the 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 forest spirit when it goes into its gelatinous amphibian form, because it's partially using computer effects, that definitely helps to sort of show its otherworldly nature when it's night walking, as opposed to just doing that by traditional animation means and it's it helps with its uncanny nature considering it's i don't know if it's just me that goat's got a creepy ass face oh the goat is so creepy it's terrifying that is made of nightmares that like they released that for children yes these motherfuckers are actually insane i mean we've talked about like this has bloody violence and people losing limbs and appendages but that goat, that goat smiling is the most terrifying. That was the creepiest part. Yeah. Oh my god. And we're adults, and we're like, no, that goat was stepping too far. We'll allow the beheadings, but like that was not okay. It's. I think the forest spirit's design is very indicative of just the. This is going to be the worst sentence I've ever said, but the nature of nature. And what I mean by that is that not only when it steps to trees and plants, sort of go through a life cycle of being born, growing, and then sort of shriveling and dying. But because it has an innocent frame, but also is somewhat unnerving and sinister, that's how nature is a lot of the time. We have this sort of stereotypical narrative that nature is pure and nature is serene, but nature can be chaotic and unfair, and nature can be sort of violent. And I think that sort of balance of 
uncanny is very indicative of what this film is trying to say. Because we're not the first ones and won't be the last ones to sort of point out the, the shades of grey between the narrative of the people of Irontown attempting to survive and the forest spirit and the creatures who dwell within the Yakushima forest attempting to live their lives against the rampant onslaught of industrialization. But I do appreciate the fact that that element of nature is not foreshadowed, but what is the word I'm looking for? Exposed, if you will. I'm listening. Please continue. So we have all sorts of creatures because we have the white tree spirits with the sort of uh, the, the clock ticking when their heads go from side to side. But we also have creepy fucking demon apes that live in the shadows and want to eat people. Those those demon apes were so scary and cool, but in like a like a cool, creepy way. Yeah, I and then they ruined them by showing them. <laughs> yeah, they're just regular ass monkeys in the end. I thought I thought they were just going to be demons because I forgot they were in them. But no, they're just they're just big monkeys. Okay, so we had a voice act. Uh, so we were listening to the dub. Yes, because we decided screw it. We'll do the dub. We'll see how they handle because it. Because it's important. Like this podcast is from an uh, has always been from an English language perspective on anime and this dub got so many people into the medium and to appreciate another yeah influence from another art form that's yeah i mean well if if the dub is trash we're obviously gonna watch the sub but the dub wasn't trash so we decided to go for the it was an important stepping stone and i have a whole section dedicated to it yeah exactly so when so when we were watching it they had the perfect voice actor for the introduction of those apes where it was like a booming but ominous voice, where it almost sounded high pitch and very solemn. Yeah, like your George Lucas impression. Um, <laughs> like it was scary. Like once again, he was going to make Greedo shoot first, and it's like, oh, you fucking bastards. Now I'm just imagining a special edition of Princess Mononoke and what that would look like. There's even more CG. There's like. Whenever an arrow is fired, it does the ring explosion from Attack of the Clones. Going back to what I was saying, um, there was this amazing ominousness, ominousness to the apes. Ominous nature of both, well, the apes, the boars, the, the wolves, all of these sort of... Well, what's an interesting parallel is you see Irontown is under siege from other warlords. And that sort of dynamic of dynasty wars are kind of also apparent... In nature itself, like the wolf clan and the boar clan are sort of bickering over what to do, sort of, you know, whether to be proactive or not. And it's, it is interesting how, you know, we're animals. We're just slightly more evolved animals that walk on two legs. And that sort of dynamic between bickering and violence is present in both sides of the equation. But here's what's interesting. I get the impression from the film mm-hmm. that the animals look down on humans the same way that the humans in uh, humans look oh, down no, on animals. Oh, there's a very key line of dialogue, and I'm not sure what the original Japanese is, but when sort of the wolf goddess says, my beautiful, ugly daughter, like when she refers to San. Yeah. Because that's very that's a very key piece of dialogue, because even know that she loves her in her own way. She knows that she will never fully belong among the wolves. And whenever she sees San, she will always see 
the people who are destroying her habitat. Yeah. And that's an interesting dynamic. Although, I would like to point out that might just be a dubism. That's fair, but considering who wrote this script, I would count on it meaning something. I hope you're right. Yes. It's just that there was a problem during the 90s and 80s where they would try and make the girl think she's ugly and then she'd turn out to be beautiful or something but look man we all know that we all know the ending of the breakfast club where the tomboy becomes the not tomboy it's a it's a sin of cinema and we'll never forget yeah that's 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 why i was a little bit i wasn't certain whether or not it was going it was done through that coming soon hayao miyazaki's she's all that <laughs> yes uh um, <laughs> Hi, I'm uh, Isao Takahata's American Pie. Oh my god. Or in that case, j- j- uh, Japanese onigiri. <laughs> <laughs> Mamoru Hosoda br- presents Superbad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, I want to see that. Who would be Japanese Jonah Hill? Oh god, I actually don't know. Oh, that'd be so fascinating. But yeah, yeah, but going back to, going back to this, um, sorry, I'm going back to all the ones. We have to, we have to cut this wound before it spreads further, much like the movie itself. I did it. I brought us back. Thank you. Okay. Yes. So it could have been a dubism. It could have been, um, a genuine, uh, a true adaptation of the original script. I don't know, but I will say this, it works. Yeah. There are parallels everywhere and it's very effective. I mean, when I say that Iron Town is like a sovereign of nomads, I do mean it like from lepers to failed Ronin to prostitutes, like very explicitly brothel girls. And the fact they got to keep that dialogue in the dub is very important. Hell, if I'm just going to skip to, uh, there's a quote from Miyazaki from the Mononoke Hime Theatre Program, which is sort of a brief series of interviews when the film was premiering in Japan, where essentially he's talking about Lady Eboshi. And an interviewer says, judging from her attire, Eboshi looks like Ashira Boriashi, which is a Japanese word for a prostitute who danced in men's attire. And Miyazaki responds, I also have that image about her. I think that she got there after going through some considerable hardship. So from a Boshi standpoint, she must feel that Ashitaka's karma is nothing, referring to her lack of sympathy for his curse. And then he goes on to say that he essentially sees Iboshi is trying to build a paradise as she thinks of it. Hence, she's a person of the 20th century. She has a clear idea and can take action. And... That's very interesting how he talks about the, 20, the woman of the 20th century, considering Iron Town is based on industry, is based on self-determination. Yeah, I will say this. It's, um, it's a very interesting dynamic between, like, I can't say this about many films, but it's one of those films that actually manages to be relatively layered and complex um, because there are real problems of sexism in the world. And these are real concerns that we have. And this was essentially a society on the verge of overcoming those, or at least working toward opposing these ideas. And then you layer on the fact that she's, that the woman who's essentially leading Iron Town is doing some really screwed up things. 
but it wasn't to anyone within the town. It's, she's actually amazing to the people in her town. It's to the people outside her town. Her sort of a policy of true isolationism. Yeah, almost like the same way the animals treat each other's clans. Yes. Um, and it becomes these amazing mirrors to each other. There's no really no real sense of unity in nature. Yeah, and that's fascinating. And then on top of that, as you mentioned, the isolationism. And truthfully, the reason why I I think everyone has a real connection to the main character, I keep forgetting his... Ashitaka. Ashitaka is because he's trying to almost bridge these clans and these worlds together. Yeah, I mean, he, I mean him and San are two mirrors of the same story. They're both nomads forced out of the homes that they knew by events they couldn't control. Ashitaka by a curse, and San by her mother's, well, her wolf mother's selfish desire to, you know... Survive. Yes, survive and take back from the humans that have wronged her. Yeah. And it's just, um, I thought it was really interesting and fascinating. And it also shows you the horrible problems that occur when you take such fucking selfish, isolationist approaches. Which is also very poignant, considering Japan for many years pursued a policy of isolationism when it came to foreign trade. It's still... And it still kind of does, especially in terms of immigration. Like, Japan has been very... I mean, we're still, when recording this, a lot of the world is still seeing the effects of the COVID pandemic. And Japan has sort of been kind of playing ring of rosies with how it's opening its borders and it's very reluctant to let in foreigners currently in general um so yeah like it's very interesting and the way they they actually do it is they sort of have to work together against all the different people who are trying to be clan it's just it's to not forget hatred but to put it aside for the greater good yeah exactly it's very indicative i'm skipping ahead a little bit but it's very poignant that San's final line to Ashitaka is, I cannot forgive the humans for what they've done. And he understands that. He understands that she will live in the forest and he will live with the people. And that sort of unfinished business, that one sort of sour prickle is still there. I mean, hopefully, overall, this is a film about balance and optimism. I mean, something that I have always sort of... St- remember when I view this film is how when the forest spirit's head is returned to it, how it takes the resources of, of wood and steel from iron town in, in sort of like a, a penance in order to rebuild its grassland society to order to sort of use the resources that were stripped from it to sort of give it a chance of rebirth. That's always something I found. I'm, I found very appropriate. I thought it was really interesting too. I was always, um, I was taken with it, but I found the pot, the optimism and the positivity of the film not to be within the dialogue or within the characters, but within the shots that the film decides to of the atmosphere. This this yeah. film loves nature, warts and all, literally. Yeah, the positivity does not come from the people, does not come from the characters. It doesn't come from any. It, well, it can it exists there in ex, it, to a certain extent, but it's more like brief glints or sparks of optimism. Yeah. Serene is the is the word I'd use, especially when Ashitaka is riding with his ilk. Exactly the 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 main washer of optimism, the hope, the brightness that you feel from the film comes from when you're looking into nature, like when uh, Ashitaka's looking at the nature gods. Um, and he doesn't fear them because he's used to working with, you know, uh, his natural habitat yeah. as opposed to the people of Iron Town who 
very much reject it for what they see as the the road forward, which to them is man-made. Yeah, exactly. But I also understand that because the thing is, that's kind of how we're so also taught. We're taught that we're supposed to build our own way ahead. Yeah. So it makes sense that at least as part of human society, you build your own way. Like I said, this was based on a on a period of Japan that very much was about embracing new ideas, albeit in a very sort of fractured way. Yeah. Um, no, I love the philosophy behind the film, the optimism. Although the optimism is very couched in lots of cynicism. Well, like a lot of characters are very somber in this. Like, I can't think of many characters that are actually positive. Most of them are I mean, somber. there's Jigo, who's the little sort of short samurai bloke who's always relatively jolly despite the fact that he's a double agent for the Emperor and wants to sort of cut the spirit god's head off. And he's always, like, at the end, he's like, oh, well, can't beat fools. And then he just sods off. Yeah. He just gives up, which I find quite quite amusing in a way. He's technically the closest the film has to a traditional antagonist, because Lady Eboshi is the villain of the piece, but she's not evil. Not inherently. But Jigo is definitely the most selfish sort of player in this whole story. Uh, yeah, obviously. Uh, yeah, he's been uh, watching carefully about all of that stuff. And he seems to be very knowledgeable uh, about everything that's going on. Like he figured out Ashitaka instantly was from a clan that supposedly deceased a very long time ago. So he quickly put that together like, oh, he's from that clan and they're still around. And he... Well, I'm not trying to figure out, did he follow him to Iron Hat Town, or did they what? I, I, I assume that the film implies that he just has a network of scouts all across the land. Yeah. Because we do see them later in the pigskins. But there's interesting, because it seems to be that the people who were most active, so the wolf, the head boar, um, Jigo, yes. um, Lady Eboshi, these are all the people that cause the most damage and death. Uh, generally speaking, I, I can't say that's always true because I know that the- because there's also infighting among the humans. Like one of the most striking sequences, and the, and the sequences that often played in the trailers, both in Japan and here, mm -hmm. is the boar assault on the emperor's warriors, where they're just kicking down handmade bombs. Bodies are exploding left and right. But we then learn in the aftermath that the warriors of Iron Town were just sort of used as guinea pigs. They were caught in the crossfire. And there's there's just as much chaos and lack of allegiance in man's world that there is in the world of nature. Yeah, that's what I found was so fascinating about the way he did the film. Like, it's almost like he enjoys nature, but he doesn't neglect it either. Like, he understands it's not to be, as you mentioned before, it's not all sunshine and rainbows. It's not to be underestimated. Like, nature can be very scary because, you know, these are creatures who hunt and eat and have a need to survive, mm. considering we have remo removed ourselves from that natural order of things. Yeah. We're somewhat between that. But any other sort of memorable moments of the film? Because we could, we could spill another hour talking about sort of little details, but I want to really sort of get into the meat of what you enjoy about this. The visuals were absolutely spectacular, like lifting the the nature god's head out of the box. The fact that nature had a flat face, <laughs> like a human face, that threw me. I was like, huh? What the shit? Okay. Um, oh, when Princess Sun, she attacked Iron Town. Oh, like the rooftop sequences are 
so expressive and violent and chaotic. And just in terms of like the, the sound design with the whip, whip, whip of her knife particularly is burned into my central cortex. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. It's, that was amazing. There was um, that scene where the wolf mother's head just comes to life and bites Lady Yoboshi's arm off, sort of like, you know, being the ultimate Chekhov's sort of half gun, because she doesn't go for the head, but she definitely wounds her. Yeah. Um, that was a crazy-ass sequence. I loved that. The fact that the spirit, the forest spirit's head comes clean off. Yeah. Like, they, they, they absolutely commit to that, and they just shoot it off with a rifle pellet, and it's it's a violent explosion. And whilst there may not be as nearly as much blood as other scenes such as the the boar god, but dear god, it's with that sort of ping, plop sound effect, for lack of a more indignified uh, way to describe it, it's harrowing. And when they lifted the, the, the dear god out of that pot after they'd chained it shut. Yes. Yeah, that was wild. I thought that was crazy. Like it was just pulling, like at first it was pouring out water and I was like, what? And then they lifted it out anyway. I was like, this is fucking wild. This is crazy. Also, I'm pretty shocked that, I guess it kind of makes sense, but Jigo decided, you know what, I'm just gonna... To be fair, if I saw a weird amphibian god turn into like a big sludge monster and then almost swallowed me, I'd want to go home too. Yeah, but he decided to take the, the head with him, when clearly that was the thing the the sludge monster wanted. And even when he was confronted, he still didn't want to give it up. Uh, I thought that was confusing. Well, no, it kind of made sense, but like I, I was too invested at that point to be like, motherfucker, just give it up. You die or you die <laughs> or you might live if you give it up. Those are your three options. Die, die, maybe live. I think that's kind of just kind of the nature of existence, which is very apt for a Miyazaki film. Yeah. And something that I think exemplifies this scale of saga is the music by Joe Hisashia. And the track that amplifies this the most to me is the sort of sweeping score of The Legend of Ashitaka. Now, this is sort of the, the theme that plays as they're sort of riding through through the forest. It's sort of like the title crawl theme, and it's this sort of epic choir and sort of it, it very much is very Lord of the Rings-esque, and I think that definitely helps this view. up now i was just gonna say yeah that makes complete sense if if anything this seems like japan's answer to lord of the rings I, yeah it's it's nowhere near as narrative heavy or as uh, black and white or factionized but there are a ton of those elements running through this whole um na- this whole narrative the whole story and it is a lot more fantastical and wild than lord of the rings is 
No, uh, no, but uh, yeah, it sounds amazing. Um, and I'm really glad we got to hear that little snippet. Um, and uh, yeah, it's even more important that we acknowledge like this, this, this music really adds to the atmosphere and it perfectly... It might be the best Ghibli score. Yeah, it perfectly complements what's going on. It is... I don't even feel like a note is out of place. It's so perfect. Like, it's, some of these songs are fantastic. I don't know if they're the types of songs you can listen to outside of the movie itself, but for the movie, whilst you're watching it, it accents everything. I have been listening to, listening to this OST quite a lot, and it's always had visions of women riding wolves and sweeping forests and destruction and creation. It's It very much is... Uh, Joe Hisaishi de- definitely is kind of... He's definitely an example of, like, Japan's John Williams, if not one of many. That association with Mononoke is the same way you'd associate the Imperial March with Star Wars or, you know, the sort of Jurassic Park reveal. It's just something that is so thematically resonant with the theme of its work. Yeah, it's an amazing option. We're, we're so lucky to have had... Um, to ha- They're very lucky to have had that composer with the score. It was perfect. I don't know if there's anything more I can say about it. So getting into, getting into the dub, because it's very important, because the Disney dubs of Miyazaki movies are phenomenally important for how the rest of the world was exposed to this artist. They're not without faults, but this one had has such a sheen behind it, because in terms of faithful localization, they tapped into the ultimate powerhouse of 90s counterculture. They got motherfucking Neil Gaiman to write the script for this film, and that's such an incredible get, and considering he was coming off of his... This is near the end of his Sandman run, and the fact that he'd spent his entire career until that point balancing whimsy, joy, and sadness, it's a very perfect combination, and his script elevates some of the acting, which is clearly struggling with the fact that a lot of these actors have clearly never tried to match lip flaps before, they've never had to do stuff in timing, but because of Neil Gaiman's eloquence, it really lands home. But it also makes me wonder, what have they got some other of the 90s comic boom authors to write the scripts? <laughs> so the problem is, is that I don't think any other uh, comic boom writers of the time, at least of the 90s, would have been good enough. Hello, I hear you've got a, a story about how man isn't very good. I will happily tie that up. Okay, hello, Mr. Alan Moore. Um, uh, We really like your script. Could you just stop putting rants about Margaret Thatcher in. We'd really appreciate that. Look, all, all right, so what if there's a scene where, like, you know, um, I, I said, so, like, Lady Oboshi make, makes love to a wolf, and it's a metaphor for <laughs> Jack the Ripper. I think the children need to be exposed to that. I am being asked to leave the building. Why does this always happen? Hollywood, am I right? <laughs> So, uh... Okay, so bring in the replacement writer. Yo, what if everyone had big tits? Oh no, Todd McFarlane, please leave us alone. Bring back Alan Moore. We'll take Alan Moore. Bring back... Let him make... We'll make a compromise. We'll say that she makes love to a wolf coat. Okay, just bring back Alan Moore. There's actually an ancient Japanese legend uh, about a woman who gave birth to eight crystal balls after being 
sort of uh, assaulted by a wolf. What the fuck? Yeah, no, it was actually the inspiration for the Seven Dragon Balls by Toriyama. <laughs> I'm not joking, look this up. But yeah, no, um, the dub is... I, I have a lot of nostalgia for it, and there are a lot of performances that I do quite enjoy. Lady Eboshi crushes oh, it. Mini Driver steals the show as Lady Eboshi. Having her being this sort of softly spoken British, sort of polite, menacing tone is a really good decision. Fantastic decision. Yeah, Billy Bob Thornton is strangely charming as Jigo. I know, right? It, he, it works so, so well. So laid back uh, that you can catch John DiMaggio is Lady Eboshi's sort of very sort of frustrated aid. Yeah. Jada Pinkett Smith is one of the brothel girls, and it's so weird to hear her in anime. Because she does a good job here. Yeah, no. I genuinely didn't clock it was Jada Pinkett Smith until you mentioned it. Like, you were like, that's Jada Pinkett Smith. I went, what the fuck? Um, yeah, that was that shit was bizarre. Um, so the problem is, although we're praising the, these voice talents now, I think they te- they tested some of the actors actually yelling like this, and other people sort of yelling like this, sort of whisper screaming. Like it's a bit mixed. Like Billy Crudup's performance as Ashitaka is very sort of subdued and a lot like this. The forest spirit is angry. We must do something. And it sort of works considering a lot of his dialogue is like a ghostly whisper like this. And I'm I'm charmed by it, but it is also easy to say that uh, Yoji Matsuda, who voices him in the Japanese, has more range. Yes. But I can deal with that, but I don't like picking on people. But unfortunately, I don't think Claire Danes' son is the best casting choice, as if there's one person who very much is clear they're kind of struggling with anime-style voice acting, even in a naturalistic setting like a Miyazaki film. It is her, as San doesn't really yell in the movie. She just kind of just loudly speaks, and it kind of takes some of the venom away from this wolf got wolf princess Yeah, and to make it worse, it has the classic dub problems of every side character almost more or less sounding bad. Um, Like, they seem to have once known someone to have once had emotions, and they convey those approximations through the microphone. Uh, It's really not great. Well, it's because America, like, because it's Disney, they got a lot of talent behind this, and I'm not necessarily against a mass amount of casting choices here, but the thing about anime dubbing you need to understand, dear Lister, is the fact it's not just acting into a microphone, it's acting to already established lip flaps to another language, meaning you've not got to say the line just by, I'm going to say the line now. You've got to, I'm going to say the line now in a very specific time frame. And the reason there was actually behind the scenes documentary footage and the ADR director said that um, Billy Bob Thornton was the best at doing that kind of dialogue because he was a musician by trade and could just keep up on, on tempo. Oh, oh, that's cool. I didn't know about, about Billy Bob Thornton. I was I was just referring to the fact that in the dub, there are a lot of voice actors, especially the side characters, who are very poorly cast or don't sound right. That's fair enough. It very much does sound like a... a there are moments where you're like, oh yeah, I can tell this is done by Disney. But it was a, a, a step in the right direction. Absolutely. And for 1997... It was an incredible achievement. For 1997, it was phenomenal. It was for considering the respect and restraint showed 
towards a product that they they took a bit of a risk on, all things considered. I mean, Princess Mononoke became profitable, but it didn't wasn't a smash success in the US initially in its run in 1997, but it was re-released later in the 2000s, once people had more of an idea of who it was. And it also did gangbusters on home video. Yeah. Uh, the problem is, is that even in the late 90s, anime was a huge gamble. Even in the, only in the 2000s did it become more reasonable and it was still a gamble. A lot of my, like a lot of this film was marketed on the fact that it had very smooth animation because at that time anime had a very dubious reputation of either being, are those those speed rater cartoons where the characters move at two frames a second or, oh, that's that violent pornographic tape my son brought home from Suncoast Video. Yeah. And having something that is not that and something that can be watched by a family. Uh, besides all of the beheadings, was something that was a, a big deal for the American market. Yeah. And that's why the Ghibli films, to this day, are so fondly remembered outside of anime fandom. I, I think it's important to remind ourselves, uh, ourselves, because especially if you're listening to this podcast, you are going to be someone of the opinion that animations and ca- cartoons are for all ages and age groups and age ranges. Um, but we are still fighting that battle as we speak in order to prove it. Exactly. I've known some incredibly progressive people who are still so dismissive of an entire art form. Absolutely. I have. I I used to know. Um, fun fact. I used to know a drug dealer. We live in mini London. That's that. That's basically just everyone knows drug dealer Steve. Yeah, exactly. And he used to watch a ton of old TV shows. He even used to watch. Um, I remember when I was um, I was chilling with him once. Uh, I don't actually partake in this stuff. Let me be clear. Um, I just happened to know him because we knew each other through uni friends. I imagine drug dealer Steve had like free consoles from the last generation. All of them looked like they had like burned CDs in them. Maybe like some bootlegged anime figures. That is, apart from the anime figures thing, that's very close to accurate. Every drug dealer has like a used original Xbox that's just lying on their floor. It's just a rule of society. Exactly. But going back to it, he said he'd never, ever, ever watch anime. But he had gotten a nostalgia kick and decided to rewatch the whole whole of Yu-Gi-Oh! and Yu-Gi-Oh! GX because he had some nostalgia for it for when he was a kid. <laughs> and I remember thinking, wow, really? You, I mean, don't you realize? He's like, yeah, I guess it's anime, but I watched it when I was a kid. I don't give a shit. I just don't want to watch well, it now. Like the ingrained effect of these people, because I've, I've met countless individuals who are Studio Ghibli absolute nuts, but people who will not touch anything by other directors. Even say Mamoru Hosoda or, or whatever. Like it's you meet a hundred people a day. I I, I I think I see it like sorry. There, yeah, I I run into what feels like a hundred people a day. I see it at least once a week where I'll see someone wearing like a jumper that just says Studio Ghibli on it or something like that. Or there'll be a very prominent T-shirt or sweater with a Studio Ghibli movie on it. Like yeah, it's uh, it's fucking everywhere but they won't touch anything outside that and i think this is super important to like really hammer home like only now this again we're recording this what 2022 this month there was released the bob's burgers movie 10 years ago this would have been a crazy high risk yes um 20 years ago hell it still is a high risk nowadays yeah just just 2d animation being released cinematically is something America just dropped down the gutter. And it's not even like 
hyper stylized. This is Bob's Burgers. We're expecting cartoon tier animation. Yes. And that seems like a crazy risk. 20 years ago, this wouldn't have happened. Uh, there's no way in hell. 10 years ago, unless it was a crazy hit, maybe, maybe they'd consider it. But no. So yeah, it's always really important to like remind ourselves. Like We've come a long way in terms of appreciating art. And I think this film had a lot to do with that. Because as much as we have talked about people who didn't stray into anime because of this film, there were equal amount of people who did. Or who took a chance on different things because they saw this film at a young age or saw it with a parent. And... There, there's so many people who were influenced by this, so many people who went on to work in stuff like other Disney films, Cartoon Network, on video games. Like, I think it's not a stretch to say that video games like Zelda Breath of the Wild have taken clear inspiration from Princess Mononoke. It, the, this film's effect of its balance of, of sorrow and joy, of, of violence and serenity, is something that I feel has a palpable effect and I think there's this quote in relation to who Ashitaka is as a character by Miyazaki, which I think is going to cap us off pretty nicely before we come back to the final question. Would you show your children this film? Okay. Ashitaka is not a cheerful, worry-free boy. He's a melancholic boy who has a fate. I feel that I am that way myself, but until now, I've not made a film with such a character. Ashitaka was cursed with a very absurd reason. Sure, he did something he should not have done, killing Tatarigami, but there was enough reason to do so from the human's viewpoint. Nevertheless, he received a deadly curse. I think that is similar to the lives of people today. I think that this is a very absurd thing that is part of life itself. And I think just learning to live with balance and rebuild is definitely a, feel, a theme we can all empathize with, especially the past two years that, you know, our generation especially has, has gone through. So with that quote, you've just reminded me of a mistake that happened from the sub to the dub. Okay. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So Ashitaka was supposed to leave without anyone saying goodbye to him. Mm -hmm. And he is supposedly saved. Who was it? His uh, In the dub, it was his sister. Yes. Uh, that is an incorrect translation. Yeah, so she calls him uh, Anisama, which means older brother, but essentially in this context it just means he's an older boy in her clan. They're essentially, she's his betrothed. That's why it's yeah. more important. And so that's why just sort of the, the jewel that she gives him that later becomes just a symbol of what Ashitaka means to San kind of just, it means a lot more. <laughs> which I found hilarious. I've got to be honest. Yeah, it's it's not just, hey, my sister gave this to me. It's it's cool, I think. It's literally the the equivalent of, yeah, this is this is this is my wedding ring. I want you to have this. Or something of equal value. It's not just like, yeah, I bought this at Tesco's. Do you want it? Hey, listen, my ex-girlfriend got me this. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to give this to you now. <laughs> That's what I read it as. I was losing it. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah uh yeah that's how i read it i thought that was funny but yeah there's the you can always rely on the dubisms to strike even even when they do it really well look man google translate didn't exist so what hope did they have yeah exactly <laughs> so would would you sit down with a family audience and watch this film because i think i would but i'd brief them beforehand uh it depends how young. Yeah. Because I, I don't know if I'd let... Because I, I, um, I wouldn't do it with my niece now, because she's like two. Um, and I don't think it's appropriate for a two-year-old. 
But I mean, they just fall asleep. <laughs> they either fall asleep or start screaming. Yeah, but which is much like this podcast. Yeah, or all, all podcasts. Yeah. to be honest. I mean, after they start copying us, what the hell do you expect? That's that's very true. We're white people with opinions. Uh, speak for yourself on that one. <laughs> well, that's why we're unique. Yes. <laughs> you frowned a minority. I have a brown friend. <laughs> and he has a brown friend. Him. Yes. No, actually, I don't like him. Him being me, I don't like me. That guy, that guy's a dick. Fuck yeah. that brown person. Don't, don't, don't give, don't give his podcast five stars. Yeah. Ugh. Um. But yeah, going back to this, I think maybe if they're seven or eight and they're a bit more accustomed to this sort of thing, I'd be a little bit more willing. Yeah. So Miyazaki himself that said that like kids over ten are about of an appropriate age, and he says that you know whilst violence is a part of human nature. This film's main sort of aim was to conquer violence, which I think is a very, very apt way of saying it. So that's an interesting thing. Um, so to sort of conclude, I personally feel that this is kind of like it's drawn from Miyazaki's conflict of, of loves and conflict in his life, considering he loves both nature, but he loves he doesn't love industry, but he loves aspects of technology. He loves airplanes. And he loves cars. And it's sort of that sort of raw view of what could be achieved with codependency and cooperation and what just the struggle to live for the sake of a new tomorrow. Like uh, the scene in the film where the lepers are telling Ashitaka to sort of forgive Lady Eboshi for her violence because they found another reason to live. I think it's kind of a message for the entire film. But also, much like Miyazaki... Every character seems to be some version of reprehensible. Um, so, and he will abuse the shit out of them like they got abused in this movie. Um, yeah, so we n- nicely tied that back into a bow. Going from the beginning where you described him as a dictator, even if he is a visionary. I'm just looking at Jay's blank face right now. Because he's like, where the fu- how the fuck did you tie that back? <laughs> to what? When did I say this? Seymour's speeches about Thatcher aren't seeming too out of place now, aren't they? Oh, c- come on, Alan. Come on. That's not fair. <laughs> so anyway, that has been our episode on Princess Mononoke. Uh, next up will be our uh, our venture into the world of Earthseas, or at least its very mediocre adaptation by Anime's Lost Son. But until then, uh, remember to rate and review us on Spotify.com. Apple Podcast, Amazon Music, wherever you get your podcasting goodness. And uh, feel free to talk to us on Garugamesh Pod. But until then, I love sushi. I love Japan. And I love you all for staying fans. Good night, everyone. Too late to give you back My receipt is gone And I'm starting to look back at everything that's going wrong Know how I used to long to hold you in my hands Such a shame it took six weeks shipping directly from Japan Not gonna lie, you were kawaii, but now your paint job's chipped away Wife. You're shining glass once, but my family in strife for what I owe to you. I swear I could die.
pillows I left hanging dry Oh darling, we're a mess Listening to Garuga Mess